Welcome to Freedom Fellowship. More information can be found online at cometofreedom.com. Grab your Bibles, open your hearts. You're going to be blessed today. We have a special guest teacher with us. We love the Word of God because we love the Lord and we love what He has to say to us. So please get your hearts open and ready to receive all that He would have. If you don't want to miss any future studies from Freedom here, please subscribe now. Um, but let me begin with prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this beautiful day. Uh, thank you for your people here who are able to gather to uh, study your word, worship you, uh, and Lord God. So I pray that you will take uh, your word, uh, speak through this message to the hearts and minds of your people so that we will become more like you. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Now, one of the most interesting, if not mysterious, aspects of Christianity is prayer. I say mysterious because Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, verse 8, your father knows what you need before you ask him. But in the next verses, he tells us to pray for our needs. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17, God commands us to pray continually. So if he knows everything anyway, why pray? And then there's the fact that so often we pray and nothing seems to happen. You pray for healing or for a loved one to come to know the Lord uh, or for some financial situation or for all kinds of other things. Maybe for days or months or even years and you see no answers and no movement. So we wonder, am I doing something wrong? Um, now, there are probably hundreds of verses in the Bible that deal with prayer. Now, as you know, we're going through the book of 1 Timothy. And right towards the beginning of the book, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Paul deals with the importance of prayer. So let me read it. Uh, and again, I am reading from the New American Standard Bible, 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all for the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I'm not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want the men in every, pla every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Now, while this passage does not give us a comprehensive explanation of prayer, it is telling us that prayer affects everything, internally and 
externally. Now we'll see how prayer affects all areas of life as we consider, first, prayer is of first importance to enable us to remain faithful. Second, prayer directly affects our relationship with God and with others. Third, prayer affects our attitude and our behavior. In short, prayer affects everything externally and internally. And we will then conclude uh, with uh, some important considerations concerning our understanding of God, ourselves, our relationship with Christ, and prayer. So first, prayer is of first importance to enable us to remain faithful. Now the phrase which begins verse one, first of all then, or as the New King James has it, therefore I exhort first of all, ties what Paul says here in the beginning of chapter two to what he has just said at the end of chapter one. In chapter one, verses 18 and 19, Paul was speaking of the importance of remaining faithful. He said there, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Now in chapter two, verse one, the Greek word for then typically is translated therefore. What Paul is saying here is therefore, if you want to remain faithful, the matter of first importance is prayer. In fact, all of chapter two and indeed the rest of the book can be seen as a commentary about how to remain faithful and what faithful, faithfulness looks like when it is applied by men and women. So right at the outset, what we are seeing is that prayer is intimately related to our faith and to our faithfulness. It is not an optional extra. The reason is that the heart of Christianity, unlike every other religion in the world, is having a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Christianity is not just a long list of rules that we are supposed to follow. It is knowing God personally. Jesus said that he came to earth so that we would have life and have it more abundantly. And in John 17, verse three, he defined what eternal life is. There he said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And that's why many people used to say, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Now the reason why this is so important is that the lifeblood of any relationship is communication. That is what prayer is. It's communication with God. Now communication is a two-way street. It's not just talking to God, but it's also hearing from God. Our prayer life reflects our relationship with God. This means that since we are constantly in God's presence, we should always be in communication with him. 
Now think of any human relationship, your marriage, a friendship, or anything else. If you never communicate, you will never know the other person, and you will have a shallow relationship at best. And that's why Paul begins his discussion of prayer by showing us that it is intimately related to our faith and our faithfulness. Now this leads us to the fact that prayer directly affects our relationship with God and with others. In verses 1 and 2, Paul says, First of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings, be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Now the different words he uses here for prayer in verse 1 suggest that all types of prayer should be made for all types of people. Our prayers should include adoration and praise of God, confession of our sins, thanksgiving for what he has done and will do, as well as requests for ourselves and for others. Therefore, in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 through 18, Paul tells us to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, there is a good acronym for prayer, which you may have heard of before, and it is ACTS, A-C-T-S. A stands for adoration. In other words, expressing our love and adoration for God, primarily for who and what he is. Now, it's natural to praise that which is praiseworthy. If we never tell our spouse or our kids how much we love them, that says something about our relationship with them. Now, if that is true on the human level, how much more should be our love for God and for what God has done for us. God is the one who gave us life. Uh, he gave us eternal life. He has blessed us in many ways, and he is present with us and helps us through hard times. Now, C stands for confession. The Apostle John said, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, we all sin in thought, word, and deed. And sin blocks or puts up a wall in our relationship between us and God. Now, we know that this is true on the human level. When somebody offends or hurts you, the relationship suffers. The same is true in our relationship with God. But confession cleanses that channel of relationship. It restores full and free communication and restores the closeness of our relationship with God. Now T stands for thanksgiving. Think of all that God has done for you. We couldn't draw one breath if it were not for him. Now, we've all heard the phrase, count your blessings. Now, sometimes that may be trite or a cliche, but it's true. 
we have all been blessed in innumerable ways, uh, both big and small. How mindful and thankful are we uh, for all that God has done for us? Again, there's a human analogy here. If your spouse or a friend gives you a birthday present or a Christmas present and you go, and toss it aside. Now that may show what you think of the present, but more importantly, it shows what you really think of the other person. Our lack of thankfulness to God really reveals two things. First, it reveals our extreme self-centeredness. And secondly, it re reveals that we really don't think that much of God at all. You see, prayer is intimately related to and reveals the nature of our relationship with God. Now, S stands for supplication. In other words, petitioning God for things for ourselves and on behalf of others. Uh, this is where most of us tend to spend most of our time in prayer. Now, there's nothing wrong with making supplication to God for ourselves and for others. In Philippians 4, verse 6, Paul says, In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, uh, let your requests be made known to God. Again, however, the issue is relationship. For many of us, and we would never say this, the way we tend to view prayer is that prayer is a way of trying to manipulate God to get him to give us what we really want. Um, and then we get angry when he doesn't come through. Now, none of us consciously thinks or says that, but look at what we spend most of our time in prayer actually doing. And what is our reaction and our feelings when we don't get what we have asked for. This really reveals the nature of our relationship with God. Now I'll have more to say about this later when we look at some important considerations uh, concerning God, ourselves, our relationship with Christ, and prayer. Now the fact that prayer affects our relationship with God is indicated in verses two through four in those verses, Paul points out that we should pray for those who are in authority. Now, Christianity and society mutually affect and influence each other. Paul goes on to say that we should pray for those in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. In other words, Christians are to be above reproach in how we live so that the government and non-Christians have no basis to attack the church. To be able to live a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity will do much to help the spread of the gospel. And living out and spreading the gospel should always be our primary concern. And that is exactly what he goes on to talk about in verses 3 through 7. There, he points out that God's desire is for people's salvation. Our lives are a witness 
for Christ. That is, uh, the, the fact is that the way we live is a reflection of Christ and the gospel. If we live lives of godliness and dignity, we will draw people to Christ. Therefore, our prayers for all people, especially for leaders, so that we may live godly lives, are, in, are ultimately based on the goal of spreading the gospel. Now, I should add two things about verses 4 through 6, which say that God's desire is for all people to be saved, and Christ is the mediator who gives himself as a ransom for all. Now, these verses must not be taken out of context uh, of the greater uh, biblical uh, witness uh, which talks about God's plan for salvation. Because the Bible indicates that although it may be God's desire that all people be saved, not all people will in fact be saved. So there are two essential ways to deal with the difference between what God desires and what actually will happen. One way is to say that the all men referred to in verse 4 means all kinds of people. In other words, all men without distinction. In other words, again, there's no distinction uh, as to race, tribe, language, economic status, or other things like that. It does not mean all men without exception or every single person in the world. The other way to deal with this is to acknowledge that in some sense there are two wills in God. We must distinguish between what God would like to see happen and what he actually ordains to occur. Now, both of these things can be spoken of as God's will. And there is an excellent article about this by John Piper entitled, The Two Wills of God. It's available online if you're interested. Uh, now, much has been written on this subject, but that is all I'm going to say about it because to go further would take us far away from the main point of this passage. Now, regarding Christ as the mediator, this highlights what we talked about two weeks ago concerning grace, mercy, and peace in chapter 1, verse 2. The reference to Christ uh, in verses 5 and 6 are pointing out that there is a great gap between God and humanity. Only Jesus Christ is able to bridge that gap because only Christ is both fully God and fully man who never sinned. Now, I'm sure you know that a mediator is someone who brings together two parties that are opposed uh, to each other. Now, a mediator has to be able to relate to both parties. In the case of God and humanity, Jesus was fully God, and therefore he can fully relate to God. But Jesus is also fully man, and he can therefore fully relate to us. Now, unlike all other people who have ever lived, Jesus alone was without sin. 
He can therefore fully represent God to man and can also appeal to God as man. Therefore, only Jesus is capable of being the mediator between a holy God and sinful people. He alone is capable of giving uh, people everlasting life and reuniting God and mankind. Now that brings us to the fact that prayer affects our attitude and our behavior. In verses 8 through 10, Paul applies what he has just been saying about prayer, first to men and then to women. Now one commentator has said this. He says, the main goal of the instruction in verses 8 through 10 is not to command the act of prayer because the specific command to pray was already given in verses 1 and 2. Instead, the focus of verses 8 through 10 is the demeanor of both men and women while praying and worshiping. Paul is insisting that men's and women's outward behavior and appearance should not be in conflict with their inner character. Now, with respect to men, verse 8 says, Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. The word therefore links verse 8 with what Paul has just been talking about. And as we've seen, the context uh, is that we may live godly lives so that the gospel may spread and people will become saved. Christian men are to set the example. Prayer is not limited to an activity we do on Sundays in church. Rather, prayer reflects our relationship with Christ. Since we are always with him, and since prayer is a matter of first importance to enable us to remain faithful, we should have an attitude of prayer at all times and in every place. Now, lifting up holy hands is not a requirement about how we have to position our physical hands when we are praying. We can pray in any position, bowing the head, lying on the ground, kneeling, lifting our hands. I mean, you could pray while standing on your head if you want to. The position of the body is not important. The attitude of the heart is. Lifting up holy hands is a metaphor for praying out of a holy life. And we know this because the context of prayer that Paul has been talking about is that we live godly lives. We can therefore expect that when Paul makes a specific application to men, what he says will relate to the context of living a godly life. Also, holy is a spiritual term, not a physical term. Washing one's physical hands does not make them holy if we are not living a holy life but are continuing to live a sinful life. Think of Pontius Pilate, 
who washed his hands. But that, that did not relieve him of his guilt for condemning an innocent man to death. Now the next phrase that Paul uses in verse 8 is, without wrath and dissension. Now this relates to and qualifies what lifting up holy hands is all about. These phrases, lifting up holy hands and without wrath and dissension, indicate that what matters is the quality of our life. Without wrath and dissension is an example of a typical sin of men that prevents them from praying out of a holy life. In other words, it prevents them from lifting up holy hands. Now, arguing, fighting, and disputing are typical male attitudes of self-promotion and self-centeredness. Me, man! Men who act like that or who have that attitude are drawing attention to themselves and away from the Lord. Their attitude and demeanor is the exact opposite of the attitude that puts God and his will first. Consequently, men who pray while in an attitude of wrath and dissension should not expect God to look favorably on them or their prayers. Now, in verses 9 and 10, Paul then applies what he has been saying about uh, the demeanor of prayer to women. In those verses, he says, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Now, the word likewise places Paul's discussion concerning women in the same context of his discussion concerning men, namely, prayer to live godly lives and prayer out of a holy life. In verse 8, Paul talked about sins that are characteristic of men. Now, in verse 9, he does the same thing regarding women. Now, although it is true, as we all know, that women get angry and argue, such behavior is not as characteristic of women as it is of men. Far more typical of women is concern over their appearance and flaunting their beauty and sexuality. Now, Paul is using an example from his own culture here. In ancient Greece, and still in Paul's day, lavish dress, lavish hairstyles, and jewelry were considered inconsistent with moral uprightness and true piety. Now, prostitutes and immoral women would often spend hours making elaborate braided hairdos basically to advertise who and what they were. Now, Christian women who dressed this way because they felt that I'm free in Christ, so I can dress however I would like, would be drawing attention to themselves and away from the Lord. 
And they would also be giving a very wrong expression or indication of what Christian morality is like. Now the reference to gold, pearls, and costly garments also shows concern about self-promotion. That's an attitude that indicates, look at me, how rich I am. Now how would the poorer sisters in the congregation feel? So he says women should dress modestly and discreetly. He is not saying that women have to wear gunny sacks. There is no dress code in the Bible. What is modest and discreet varies from culture to culture and uh, changes over time. Now, if Paul were writing this letter today, he would not even mention braided hair, since braided hair connoted something in his culture that it does not connote in our culture today. Now, I can give a good example of what Paul is really saying uh, from East Africa. When I started going to East Africa a number of years ago, I began with a group called uh, Equipping Pastors International, which was founded by a uh, pastor and his wife from Florida. Uh, their names were Jack and Carol Arnold. Now, many years ago, uh, probably in her first trip to East Africa, Carol was somewhere in a rural area of Uganda teaching women. But she noticed that the women don't seem to be paying attention to me. So she asked her translator, what's going on? And the translator said, it's because you're wearing pants. Because in rural Uganda, like much of rural East Africa, women wearing pants connoted that she's a loose or immoral woman. Now here, I mean, Carol was not aware of that because here women wear pants uh, all the time and nobody thinks anything of it. It's a cultural thing. So she learned that, she got herself a long dress or a long skirt and that solved the problem. Um, and you know, the point is, in East Africa, that is changing particularly in the urban areas and particularly among younger women. You see much more younger women wearing pants uh, in urban areas uh, than in the rural areas. But it's one of those cultural things. Um, the point is, we need to be aware of the messages our dress may be conveying and the effect uh, that it may be having on others. We should not put any stumbling blocks that would prevent people from hearing the gospel and seeing our good character. Paul is saying that the typical sinful behaviors of both men and women will draw people's attention to themselves and away from the Lord. He's asking us to consider why are you doing what you are doing? He's asking us to be mindful of our attitudes, our looks, and our demeanor, because all of these things reflect our relationship with God and may adversely affect other people. We may not think of these things as having anything to do with loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbor as ourselves, but they do. Paul is making clear that all aspects of our lives, our emotional lives, insisting on getting our own way, even how we dress, ultimately demonstrate what we really think about Jesus 
and other people. Prayer and having a good prayer life therefore should affect both our attitudes and our behavior. We've seen how prayer arises out of and reflects our relationship with God. We've also seen that prayer affects all of our relationships with God and with others and affects all areas of our life, both internally and externally. Now, in light of all of this, let me mention some important considerations concerning our understanding of God, ourselves, our relationship with Christ, and prayer. First, we need to have an adequate understanding of God to have an adequate understanding of prayer. We've seen that prayer is linked to faith. Now, some people talk about the power of prayer. I would not put it that way. To talk that way implies that prayer itself has some kind of power. In effect, that attitude turns prayer into a kind of magic. We are praying to God. God is the one who is sovereign over everything and has a plan for everything. He is the one who has all the power, not the prayer. Now, prayer cannot manipulate him because prayer ultimately is not about us. It is about him, his will, and his glory. He uses everything, including us and our prayers, to bring his will to ultimate fruition. Nothing and no one can thwart his ultimate will, although we may act contrary to his revealed will. Now second, we need to have a clear view of ourselves. Our flesh wants to make God smaller and us bigger and thereby shrink the difference between us. We tend to think, again, without explicitly saying this, that God exists for me and my needs to satisfy my desires and to help me in times of trouble. We tend to want a God who will give us what we want without being accountable to him. In other words, we want to be in control. But we need to come to grips with this issue. If Jesus really is God, then how am I going to live my life? The question is not, what can God do for me? but what can I be for him? Amen indeed. Third, we need to have a right understanding of Christ and our relationship with him. Prayer is communication, and communication is the lifeblood of any relationship. Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, moves us to pray, largely in order to deepen the relationship between us and and him. As we give him more and more access to ourselves, that relationship will grow. As we grow in our relationship with him, the more he will reveal his heart and his will to us. As a result, 
I will be content with whatever he gives me. Because now I see that he is more precious to me than anything else in the world. So we need to ask ourselves, what price am I willing to pay? And what time and effort am I willing to spend to become like Christ and foster a deep relationship with him? Now fourth, we need to have a clearer understanding of prayer itself. It is not our ability to articulate our needs or even the fervency of our prayer that causes our prayers to be heard and answered. If that were true, then we would get the glory. Rather, it is our helplessness and our dependency on him. God uses that to demonstrate that it is his power that provides the answer so that he may be glorified. And that is a key factor. Is he the one we really want to glorify or ourselves? Are we simply willing to bring the matter that concerns us to him and then rest in and be content with whatever answer he gives? Do we trust him? Ultimately, the issue is, are we willing to die to ourselves that he may be magnified in our lives? Are we willing to say, I want your will done in this matter? Would we rather have him get us out of a tough situation, or can we truly say, if you will be glorified by my remaining in this tough situation, then that is what I truly desire. When we can come to the point of really accepting what God does, how he does it, and when he does it, not as my will, but as his will, leaving the answers entirely to him, then and only then are we truly praying in Jesus' name and according to his will. Now in conclusion, let me say this. Prayer is a deep subject because God is a deep God. Prayer is of first importance to enable us to remain faithful. Prayer directly affects our relationship with God and with others. And prayer affects our attitudes and our behavior. In short, prayer affects everything, internally and externally. Ultimately, as we have seen, prayer is not primarily about us and our needs and desires. It is about God, his will, his plan, and his glory. He allows us to come to him in prayer and desires that we come to him in prayer because prayer is based on our relationship with him and he desires a deep relationship with us. But all the things we've talked about suggest that many of us 
and I am speaking to myself here, should probably reevaluate our attitude towards prayer. We should spend more time in prayer and probably change the way we pray because prayer reveals and exposes the true nature of our relationship with God. Now, because it does that, if we want our relationship with him to be closer than the closest human relationship ever could be, then the best way to achieve that is through prayer. So let me pray with you. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Thank you for your word and for allowing us to pray. Lord God, prayer is deeper than most of us consider most of the time. Lord God, help us to truly trust you and help us to get to the point where we can truly say, Lord God, you do what you want with me in this situation. Whatever that may be, if you are going to be glorified by my remaining in this hard situation, then Lord, I truly want that. Help us to truly pray, Lord God, not my will, but yours be done so that you get the glory. Lord God, this is contrary to the way most of us naturally are, but you're a great God. You are working in us and help us to use prayer to make us more like yourself. And we do ask this in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for studying the Word of God with us today. If you were blessed by the teaching of it, would you please make sure to share it, that others too may be blessed and grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Until next time, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.